On a gorgeous tropical island in the middle of the Indian Ocean stands a mountain visible for miles off the coast, on the peak of which, according to Muslims, is a huge footprint that marks the spot where Adam, Adam, the first human being, fell to earth after being expelled from paradise. Hello, welcome to Akpas Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in case you hadn't worked out already, I'm sure you have, that the island that I was talking about is Sri Lanka, known in Arabic and Persian sources as Sarandib, or otherwise as Ceylon, which gave us the older English name for Sri Lanka of Ceylon. The island of Sri Lanka, the nation state of Sri Lanka, is nowadays much more known through the population, indeed the politics of its Buddhist majority and indeed of its Hindu Tamil minority. But the Muslim communities, there are several of Sri Lanka, have an extremely long, complex and, I hope you'll agree, altogether fascinating history that takes us to many different corners of the Islamic world through the roots and routes that brought these different communities to the island, through travel, through pilgrimage, and that carried with them not only their own histories, but their languages. The Muslims of Sri Lanka historically have been involved with a range of languages, whether Tamil or Sinhala, the language of the Buddhist minority, or indeed Malay, and sometimes Arabic and Persian. And over the centuries, as they settled in Sri Lanka, these different Muslim communities created their own sacred geographies on the island of mosques, of shrines, and this great pilgrimage center to, to the mountain, usually known in English as Adam's Peak. We'll be exploring these different histories and indeed these different geographies of Islam in Sri Lanka in our conversation today with Alexander McKinley. He holds a PhD from Duke University and is the author of many articles on the history of Islam in Sri Lanka that are available on his Academia EDU website. And he's also the author of a forthcoming book with Columbia University Press, drawing on his research and focusing particularly on the complex histories of Adam Speak. <laughs> Hello, Alex. Welcome to Akbos Chamber. Hello, Niall. Very happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad we're going to talk about the, your fascinating research over many years in, in Sri Lanka and on the little-known topic of the, the Muslim communities, really, the several sort of distinct uh, Muslim communities that emerged over in Sri Lanka over a period of many centuries, and indeed more than a millennium. Sri Lanka, of course, lies off the southern coast of 
of India, and perhaps more importantly, historically, it lies in the midst of the, the monsoon winds and the trade routes across the Indian Ocean that have connected it to the Middle East uh, as much as India, and indeed to Southeast Asia, to the Malay Muslim world beyond it since time immemorial, really, since before the time of Islam. And indeed, as we'll be talking about from a, a Muslim perspective, from the beginning of all human time, Dot, dot, dot. We'll come back to that, <laughs> what I mean by that, through what we talk about later. But to start us off, I suppose, let's start sort of, you know, with the basics, as we always do on Akbar's Chamber, because not many listeners will think of Sri Lanka in relation to Islam, probably being more familiar with the island's Sinhala Buddhist majority or its Tamil Hindu minority, or perhaps even the Christian population that have been in Sri Lanka since, uh, again, many, many centuries. So to start us off, can you tell us who are the Muslims of Sri Lanka? Sure, absolutely, Now, The uh, Muslims of Sri Lanka are an incredibly important group for the island's history and for their multicultural presence. They make up a fairly significant percentage of the population. There's over 2 million Muslims on the island today. That's about 10% of Sri Lanka's population. They're concentrated on the East Coast, especially, and a bit on the West Coast, but really there's pockets everywhere, even deep into the interior, which is a testament to how many centuries they've been settled on the island for. They're often today treated as a sort of monolithic group in the sense that people just use the term Muslim to refer to anybody who goes to a mosque. But that's a pretty recent development. Um, in the mid 20th century, they were still distinguishing each other by all sorts of ethnic categories and family lineages from different places that they arrived. I think a lot of people associate Sri Lanka with Buddhists and Hindus mostly because of Sri Lanka's civil war, which stretched from the early 1980s till 2009. Um, and to be honest, the Muslims got the short end of the stick in that civil war in many ways. They were kind of caught in between these groups. Um, ethnically, some claimed that Muslims in Sri Lanka were mostly Tamil, since their mother tongue is often Tamil, but they didn't want to be lumped in with the Tamil separatists. And so they kind of carved out an ethnicity based around their religious identity. Uh, they got displaced from some of their homelands in Sri Lanka due to the civil war. They were exiled from certain parts of the north and the east by the LTTE uh, Tamil separatists. And they've still not returned in full numbers to northern places like Jaffna. But there's uh, strong Muslim communities in the eastern coast city of Batikaloa and the west coast city of Colombo. And uh, all around the island, there are all sorts of historic mosques and so on. Um, so if you had to group Sri Lanka's Muslim community into different categories nowadays, I'd say there were three main categories. One would be the, the Sri Lankan Moors, a term that was bestowed upon them by the Portuguese, but which they've adopted as their uh, ethnic identity. And then the Sri Lankan Malays, who have come from Southeast Asia, a much smaller community. And then finally, a third group that is comprised of various Indian Muslim groups who emigrated in the 19th century during the British colonial period. Well, that's really helpful. It gives us the sense, yeah, as you said, that yeah, the, the Muslims of Sri Lanka were not a, a, a monolithic group. And among they had different, uh, I suppose, different roots in, a, in a, where they'd come from and different languages that they spoke. And in, and in some senses, uh, as I understand it, they were sort of distinguished by sort of different 
different professions, different things that they work by, and sort of the other, so let's say, kind of socioeconomic factors as well that you know kind of made them not just this one monolithic group. So how did they come to the island and how did Sri Lanka's Muslims come to the island itself and how did their religious and cultural traditions develop there over preceding centuries? And perhaps you can give us, you know, some, some it's not always easy, I guess this is contested among the different Muslim communities themselves, the actual dates of when they arrived, but if you could give us some sense of a, perhaps a, a timeline as well, have a provisional, I think that would, would uh, help all of us listeners. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the Muslims came to Sri Lanka over what I would say were waves and waves of migrations across centuries. It wasn't like there was a single dumping of Muslims back in the period of early Islam. But the period of early Islam, specifically the 8th century, is when a lot of Muslim families trace their lineage back to. There's not a lot of hard documentation for that. Um, There are some family trees But we do have some inscriptional evidence. Uh, Kufic tombstones from the 18th century have been found in different coastal areas of Sri Lanka. So we know at least there were some Muslim traders who had settled there, uh, may have taken local wives once they did, and began a certain Muslim community. Um, The largest, by far the largest Muslim group on the island are the Sri Lankan Moors. Uh, They call themselves in Tamil the Sonahar, traditionally. Um, in Singla, that word is yonaka. It's thought to come from a Sanskrit word, yavana, which means something like a Westerner, someone who's come from the West. So initially, that term may have been applied to anyone who came from that direction. They, it's a pre-Islamic term in that sense. They weren't Muslim when it was first applied. But then later, it comes to stand specifically for Muslims. And so the Moors are the community that often says, well, our our original ancestors go back to these Arab traders, uh, these people who may have even been companions of the prophet. And so they create legitimacy for their families in that way. If you look at family names among the Sri Lankan Moor community, it's clear that there were a lot of subsequent migrations from South India and Muslim communities there. So one of the most prominent family names is the Marakars in Sri Lanka. They're also all over South India in Kerala and in Tamil Nadu. And uh, the name Marakar comes from a Tamil word that means like a ship captain or a ship owner. So right there, you get an indication of how they migrated initially through these Indian Ocean patterns. Uh, There were also the Mapila group of Muslims who come from Kerala, and they settled mainly on the eastern coast of Sri Lanka in Batikaloa and Kartankudi, which are still Muslim strongholds. Uh, And then another very prominent family name uh, is Lebe. Uh, Lebe's come from South India as well and make up some of the most famous Muslim families in Sri Lanka, who were a big part of the Islamic revival and reform movements in the late 19th century. And it was in the late 19th century that the Islamic Moor community started to carve out this notion that its ancestry was almost purely Arab. Uh, Of course, we know that's not true. Linguistically, their mother tongue is Tamil. Uh, They've done genetic studies which show much more Tamil DNA than Arab DNA. But it was important to cultivate this idea of Arab heritage in this moment of identity building in the British colonial period. Because already then, people were starting to lump Muslims in with Tamil Hindus, and they wanted to carve out their own identity, which would mean their own political bloc and their own sorts of reservations under the colonial government for various offices and so on. 
And so they built up this myth of Arab ancestry, which certainly has kernels of truth to it. But in terms of the total migrations over the years, I think you find a lot more people would have come from South India than from across the Indian Ocean. Uh, and then, of course, the colonial period, uh, which is very long in Sri Lanka, affects the nature of the Muslim community there. So the Portuguese arrive in Sri Lanka around the year 1500, and, and they control some parts of the coast until around the year 1650. They had a notoriously antagonistic approach towards their Muslim neighbors and uh, drove many of them farther into the interior of the island where the Muslims were actually welcomed by the King of Kandy at the time, the Buddhist king, uh, who needed them to continue to be his links to the coast. They would bring in the trade products from the coast that he was otherwise cut off from due to the Portuguese forts and the Portuguese soldiers, which were controlling that area. And then when the Dutch period arrives in Sri Lanka, which runs from about 1650 to 1800, roughly, uh, the Malay Muslim community arrives on the island. They come from the greater Malay world, Java, other parts of Indonesia, and the, many of them were exiled by the Dutch East India Company that was trying to cut down on the number of nobility who remained in their colony so as to prevent possible uprisings against them. And those exiled Malays formed their own Sri Lankan Malay community, which still has tens of thousands of people in it, although it's, it's dwindled a bit over the years. And then finally, during the British period, migration really opens up a lot more than it had under the Portuguese or the Dutch. And this is when we start seeing Muslims from India coming to settle in Sri Lanka, not just South India, but as far away as Gujarat. And there are a number of Muslim communities, uh, the Memin community, the Boras, the Kojas, they all come from Gujarat uh, in the late 19th century and settle in Sri Lanka throughout the 20th century. There are still a few small pockets of them in major cities like Colombo, although they've usually either entirely integrated into a Sri Lankan Moor identity or otherwise left the island. Uh, but interestingly, the Memon community, for example, more of them were driven to Sri Lanka because of the British colonial policies, namely the end of the British Empire. The Memon community was not only based in Gujarat, but also in Sindh, in Pakistan. So during partition, when that community was split, a lot of people just uprooted entirely and went to join their Memon compatriots who had already settled in Ceylon at that point. So really, it's all sorts of people coming from many different directions over many centuries. So you're giving us this sense, really, Alex, of, uh, of this island that's amidst these these trading routes of the Indian Ocean, as well as the, the monsoon winds, that natural phenomenon. But these are sort of enabling these these trading routes of which some, as you mentioned, not all of the, the Muslim communities are really deeply involved in the the import of some crucial goods to Sri Lanka. But crucially, the, the export of of the various kind of raw materials, really, that and medicinal things and so on, woods, pearls, um, precious items, really, high-value exports, on which at least a significant part of the Sri Lankan traditional Salinese economy and its its wealthier groups, not least its rulers, pre-colonial as well as pre-colonial, really relied upon. So the Muslims were really entangled in the, the economy of Sri Lanka from, in a sense, from presumably, you know, kind of the earlier periods, really, when, when it developed this, this important export economy. And thereby, of course, it's the wealth of the island that brings in this range of uh, 
of different European groups, the Portuguese, and then the Dutch who conquer from the Portuguese, and then the early 19th century, then the British who take the island from the Dutch. So the different Muslim groups then are sort of entangled among these various different social, political, indeed economic concerns. So we're getting this sort of sense that this is there's much more than just religion going on here. So I wonder if you could sort of dig a bit more then, perhaps into the the these sort of colonial entanglements or economic entanglements during the colonial period, however we want to think about it, of the, uh, the some of the different Muslim groups. Sure, absolutely. It's quite interesting that both the Muslim traders and the European colonialists had their eyes on the same things a lot of the time, and they were competing in the same economic arena in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Sri Lanka is an interesting case where the Europeans almost depart from the tried and true model that had brought them success elsewhere, this sort of port and fort style of colonialism, where you just dip your toes into a certain place, extract its wealth and ship it back out from behind the safety of your fort walls. For some reason, I think because of its connection with the idea of paradise and Eden, the Portuguese Catholics developed this obsession for trying to conquer the entire island, which ultimately backfired against them. They wasted so much treasure and manpower on attempting to capture the capital of Candy several times and always being thwarted in one way or another. Um, they were also continually undermined by the local Muslim traders who had already sort of ingratiated themselves in with the Buddhist kings on the coast. So from the moment the Portuguese arrive in Sri Lanka, the Muslim traders warned the king, we've heard of these guys, we, we know what they did in India, they're pirates. And the Portuguese respond to the Buddhist king, no, we're not the pirates, they're the pirates. Of course, both sides are robbing each other's ships at the time. Whoever can get the upper hand does. Um, so this colonialism wasn't so much about conquest of land, even though the Portuguese tried to conquer the whole island. It was more that they were playing the middleman in trade routes that already existed, exporting and importing important raw materials. Sri Lanka is famous for its gems, but really a lot of what was traveling was less uh, fancy stuff. Coconuts, arachnut, uh, various timber for shipbuilding, uh, various types of fiber for rope making. Stuff that flies under the radar in most histories, but actually makes up the bulk of the profits for these sort of companies. And this is what everyone was jostling over. There were also pearl fisheries, still are, on the western coast of Sri Lanka, which certain Muslim traders had rights to, certain kings had control over. And of course, the Portuguese upset that whole balance when they show up as well. Um, the Dutch take a slightly less antagonistic view towards Muslims. They're of uh, uh, Calvinist faith rather than Catholic, so they have a bit less uh, baggage that comes from the Crusades, I suppose. But they still see Muslims as competition in terms of economic interests. So at certain points, you see them sort of settling with the fact that they're never going to get rid of these Muslim traders. And then in other sort of edicts that the Dutch council passes, they're clearly trying to limit the influence of these traders, limit what they can participate in, in terms of the exchange of goods. And they're always complaining. If you look at the, the Dutch governor's journals, always complaining about Muslims secretly trading. Even though there's a law against Muslims trafficking in this or that item, they're known as exceptionally good smugglers. Uh, so it seems to be traffic from South India that the Dutch were most concerned about. 
But Muslims who were coming farther away from the area of Bengal were seen to be acceptable because they were bringing in important import staples like rice and not dealing so much in the cash plantation crops like coconuts, which were trafficked more across South India and Sri Lanka. And then, of course, during the Dutch period, you have this infusion of an entirely new Muslim community in Sri Lanka, the Malays. And the Malays have a reputation uh, not only as being exiled princes, but as being exceptional soldiers. And that stereotype continues th through the British period as well, where Malays are often enlisted into colonial regiments and uh, police stations and so on. Um, interestingly, they also get incorporated into the Buddhist king's armies in Kandy. If you look at the Singhala poetry that describes the various wars that the king of Kandy fought, uh, whether with the Portuguese or with the British, some of its troops are almost always described as being from Java, which was kind of a stand-in word for the greater Malay universe. Um, a lot of this has been written about in Roni Ricci's recent book, Banishment and Belonging, which works with a lot of rare Malay manuscripts that she uncovered in Sri Lanka and which have been preserved now through the British Library's Endangered Archives program uh, to uncover the largely unwritten history of this small Muslim community on the island. That That's very interesting, isn't it, where you're finishing there, Alex, because you, you, you're Again, give us this nod, the reminder that the, the Muslim histories of Sri Lanka as part of the, the bigger history of Sri Lanka and its peoples are actually kind of written, recorded, forgotten, sometimes sort of rediscovered in this range of languages, which are certainly not the national languages of Sri Lanka, but they are the languages of Sri Lanka's different peoples, including then, as you've, as you've mentioned, Malay and indeed languages such as Tamil and Sinhala that you work with yourself and and perhaps in some ways other more expected languages that that, that I, I can't resist mentioning. Uh, that, that one of my favorite sort of historical documents that I often bring up in my teaching, the Gala Trilingual Inscription. So this stone that you all know well, Alex, that uh, was inscribed, uh, a stele, an inscribed stone in the port of, of, of Gala, where, of course, there were so many of the these Muslim traders that was actually the result of a the great early Ming Chinese uh, trading, military trading expedition as well, that's sort of somewhat preceding the, uh, the the European expansion into the Indian Ocean. And in 1409, then Zheng He, the great Chinese Muslim sailor and general working for the, for the non-Muslim Ming emperors then, has this inscription set up in Tamil, uh, in Chinese and in Persian. So not then Sinhala. So the languages then of history in, in Sri Lanka then, you know, kind of are not necessarily what one might think of now as the, the key national language then of, of Sinhala then. So we have this kind of very interesting sense of the many players then, including the Muslims then who are hinted at here by by the use of, uh, of certainly Persian. And perhaps, I don't know if you have a sense of this, whether Tamil was also intended for the, for the uh, Tamil-speaking Muslims of that period. And of course, earlier than that, then we have Ibn Battuta and his famous, the Moroccan Arab globetrotter, who of course also went to China on these same trade routes and in the early 1340s. He's there in, in Sri Lanka and leading his account as well that you might want to come back to. So what we get in this sense of then is that in so many respects, Islam in Sri Lanka and the Muslim communities in the plural in Sri Lanka emerge from 
some of these larger patterns of Indian Ocean Islam that that have been part of the discussions in several earlier episodes of Akbar's Chamber. So for my next question for you then, I'd like to ask in what ways would you say that Sri Lankan Islam reflects such wider Indian Ocean patterns? And in what ways does Sri Lankan Islam differ from those Indian Ocean patterns? Yeah, the Sri Lankan Muslim community would not exist without these Indian Ocean patterns. It is entirely born of them. Um, and to speak to your point about the Gaul inscription, I think the reason Tamil is included there is because that was the pre-modern lingua franca, so to speak, of the Indian Ocean world, that part of the Indian Ocean world, South India, Sri Lanka, the Maldives. Regardless of local vernaculars, you could be pretty sure that people on the coasts, whether they're the royals or whether they're the traders, spoke and understood Tamil. Uh, and so there are a whole variety of different styles of Sri Lankan Muslim Tamil. It's sort of considered a linguistic subset of official Lankan Tamil. But there is a West Coast version and there's an East Coast version. And these slight changes in dialects depend on where the ancestors of the community hailed from. Were they from the Carolan coast and they've got this sort of Malayalam infused Tamil? Or were they from the Coromandel coast and they've got more of a traditional Kaveri River Basin Tamil from South India? And it affects the sort of Muslim Tamil that they speak, which is then is, of course, also infused with Arabic terms and Persian terms that have been picked up over generations as well. So you see the Indian Ocean patterns in the language itself, which is really fascinating. Um, the Muslim community in Sri Lanka comes from pretty much every corner of the Indian Ocean world. You've got the traders from the Persian Gulf, who I suppose instituted the South Indian and Lankan Muslim communities back in the 8th century or so. Uh, you also have this robust connection with all of the important Islamic sites and communities in South India and in North India as well when it comes to the Gujarati Muslims settling in Sri Lanka later. Then you've got uh, connections all the way across the western half of the Indian Ocean to Africa and that especially happened with the gem trading communities. So there's this interesting quirk of geological history. If you want to look at the super long array of Indian Ocean history and go back hundreds of millions of years, you find the same types of gems in Sri Lanka as you do in Madagascar, as you do in Kenya, because back 550 million years ago, all of these were part of the same landmass, the southern half of Pangaea. And there was a large originesis, as a geologist would say, a, a formation of mountains, which created all these gemstones. And then, of course, the continents separated, and now you have the same types of gems separated by thousands of miles of ocean. But the Muslim traders sort of recognized, hey, these gems look a lot like the ones across the ocean over there. And so they would trade back and forth between Madagascar and Sri Lanka. And, and these sorts of gemming families still exist and still maintain those really long transoceanic connections. Um, this has been looked into by a young Sri Lankan scholar in her PhD. She recently finished, finished at uh, Stanford, Natra Samara Vikrama. Um, the Muslim trading families in Gaul, for example, uh, still have relatives in Madagascar and they still move stones back and forth from one island to another. Uh, and then you've got connections on the eastern half of the Indian Ocean as well, through the Bay of Bengal. You had a lot of Bengali Muslim traders um, in operating in the 17th and 18th centuries in Sri Lanka. And then 
farther down the southern half of the Bay of Bengal towards Southeast Asia, of course, you have these connections with the Malay community. Um, and in almost all cases, the links persist across generations. It may be that nowadays people aren't actually taking boats across the ocean, but they're taking airplanes to the same places that they used to come and go to. Uh, of course, the connection between the Middle East and Sri Lanka in terms of its Muslim community is stronger than ever due to the high amount of migrant labor that passes from Sri Lanka to the Middle East. Um, and when Sri Lankan Muslims go and work in the Middle East for a time, they adopt a lot of Orthodox Islamic teachings. Um, it comes back then in the sort of dress people wear, in the sort of relationship to Arabic that they have, in the types of architecture that they want for their new mosques. Um, so the imprint there is strong. Uh, I, I mentioned there's still connections with Africa. Um, there's still strong connections between Muslims in South India and Sri Lanka as well, who visit one another's sacred sites. And of course, the uh, Malay community in Sri Lanka is still very aware of its heritage because they have named the street they live on, you know, Malay Street. And there used to be a Java Lane as well, although that neighborhood was unfortunately demolished back in 2014 to make way for high-rise condos, which is the way of so many neighborhoods in Colombo these days. Um, but they did preserve at least the Java Lane Mosque as this testament to the Javanese community that, that once lived there. Um, what's different about the Muslim community in Sri Lanka, though, is that they're not purely a coastal community. Their populations are still concentrated in coastal cities, but they have these robust enclaves in the interior of the island. And it's the interior of the island where actually a lot of their sacred sites are and their pilgrimage networks. So usually when we talk about Islam in the Indian Ocean, we think about these mosques that are right on the coast. I mean, so on the coast that they get flooded with high tides or they get crashed into by typhoons. And, and there are mosques like that in Sri Lanka. The one in the town of Beruwala is thought to have been founded by the first Muslim to ever settle the island back in the late seventh, early eighth century. Um, but if you go inland, you find places like the mountain of Adam's Peak, uh, you find the pilgrimage site of Katargama, which has a Sufi tomb there. Uh, there's the pilgrimage site of Dr. Jailani, associated with the famous Saint Jailani, who was said to have visited there. And then there are, are also a number of tombs of Sufi sheikhs who visited and passed away there. Uh, these are all places that are not easily accessible from the coast by any means. Um, but Muslims made the effort to go and mark them out as a sacred Islamic space. Uh, I think it's because so many had settled permanently in the interior. I mentioned that the Portuguese may have driven some of these communities into the Candian kingdom, and the Candian king welcomed them. Um, and in the process, Muslims were integrated into local relationships of land tenure. So the king, for example, according to the account of Robert Knox, who was an English sailor imprisoned in the Candian Kingdom in the 17th century, he said right in the capital, there was a large mosque for Muslims, and that had been built by the Candian king himself. And he had given Muslims rights to collect dues from passersby who would cross over mosque property. 
Um, that was probably in exchange for certain services that the Muslims were providing to the court, whether it was bringing trade products in from the coast, or Muslims also had a reputation as physicians in the Candian kingdom. And the personal physician to several Candian kings was in fact a Muslim. But then even on a more local scale than courtly life, we find Muslims integrated into village landholding agreements. And village lands were often rented out by powerful temples, temples controlled by Buddhists for the most part, but which had sections with deities that Hindus would often recognize. And usually these land tenure agreements involved giving a certain amount of acreage to a person in exchange for particular services during those temple festivals. So we have a few records of Muslim families who were given land either for farming or to build a mosque. And in exchange, they were expected to provide some good or service to the temple, such as uh, oil for lighting lamps during a festival or sweeping services to clean up after the festival. Uh, it's not clear from these agreements whether the Muslims were religiously participating in these sorts of events or whether they viewed this as more of a transactional relationship. But in either event, it does show a close interweaving amongst a number of different religious communities. And it's only in the modern period, the post-colonial period, really, that these sort of religious activities are seen to be mutually exclusive, that if you're a Muslim, well, you can't be participating in these temple festivals, you have to only be going to mosque. And that really doesn't seem to be the case in the early modern period at all. Part of just integrating yourself uh, into life as a farmer in Sri Lanka was getting to know the people at the local temple, because they were the ones who owned all the land. That's interesting, isn't it? Because so much of the the modern, I guess, the kind of the the historians, the anthropologists' understanding of of Islam in the Indian Ocean is this emphasis on connectivity with distant places and so on. Uh, but you're bringing us to, in a sense, uh, you know, yeah, as I've, I've asked you, something different, and that difference is the the real local rootedness as well, both in terms of local geographies, but also other communities, the kind of the, the local sort of social entanglements with with religious others whose otherness perhaps was, if not so perhaps apparent, maybe it was apparent, but at least it was kind of negotiated in different ways that people found these these commonalities. You also mentioned then that the, a few key places, didn't you? I mean, when perhaps many listeners, when they hear the name Candy, will think, oh, isn't that the place of the, the famous Temple of the Tooth, the 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 Buddhist temple of the what's in Buddhist tradition is the, the the tooth of the historical Buddha, which very early on in the Buddhist history of Sri Lanka, the religion obviously spreading from India then becomes a key pilgrimage site. But as you mentioned, there's also a mosque nearby there as well. And also, of course, then these, uh, as we'll turn to now in a particular case study, then these religious sites which were shared competed over or or, or, or or cooperated over? I mean, have a, a perhaps at different times, both perhaps. So one of the central traditions then of Lanka's Muslims is, as you've already briefly alluded to, the pilgrimage to what Sri Lanka's Muslims believe is the footprint of Adam, Adam in the, the Arabic then, the, the first human, or Adam in the biblical tradition as well. And, and that's on this mountain that's known in English as Adam's Peak, this great big mountain that stands out in the midst of the island. But the mountain and this big apparent footprint then 
It's about six foot, I think, because you can give us the exact stats, no doubt. Uh, there's long been also a place of Buddhist and, and Hindu pilgrimage as well. So can you tell us about the Muslim practices of pilgrimage to the footprint of Adam, the first human, the Muslim prophet as well as the first human, and how this Muslim pilgrimage relates to Buddhist and Hindu pilgrimages to exactly that same spot and indeed that same footprint? Yeah, absolutely. The the Muslim history of interest in a mountain in Sri Lanka or Serendip, as it was called in the pre-modern texts, where Adam first descended from paradise, that goes back a long, long way, um, at least to the ninth century. Uh, it's in the history of Al-Tabari uh, mentioned many times, and he cites many different chains of transmission of Isnad of different people who said it. A lot of the these Isnad go all the way back to Ibn Abbas, companion of the prophet. Um, he's sort of credited with a lot of different uh, stories that some might categorize as folklore, but it's clear that they were coming from these Indian Ocean networks, stories of faraway lands that certain traders had visited and were then percolating back to the Arabic and Persian literary worlds. So we get many mentions of those before we ever get uh, an actual firsthand account of a Muslim pilgrimage to Adam's Peak. That doesn't come till the case of Ibn Battuta, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But those, those earlier texts did a, a very important work of building up the mythos and then actually specifying what mountain in question was the place where Adam descended. Because initially the references are very vague. Oh, it's somewhere off in India, the land of perfumes, there was this notion that it was a mountain called Nude, and it, it could have been anywhere in India. But then that gets specified over time to specifically a mountain in Serendip. And there is some ambiguity over where Serendip was. It's largely believed to be Sri Lanka by modern historians, but it's clear there was some confusion about the term among Islamic authors in the pre-modern period. But once it's stabilized in Serendip, the mountain then gets a new name in Arabic texts. It's called Al-Rahun, which the etymology of which is not entirely clear. A lot of different Muslim authors had different theories for why that was. Um, and some historians think maybe they got the term from the name of a kingdom in southern Sri Lanka, which was called Rohana. Um, so they heard that as Rahun. Um, in, in any event, giving a specific name to the mountain and a specific name to the island took this place from the realm of imagination to an actual tangible site that you could visit, to a real pilgrimage place. So by the time we get to Ibn Battuta's account in the 14th century, it's clear that Muslim pilgrimage is in full swing there. He is not the first guy to show up. There's a lot of people there on pilgrimage with him. He gets the idea to go visit the mountain from some companions who have done the same thing. Um, so I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Ibn Battuta and his Rila, his, his travelogue. Uh, it is just an extraordinary text. There's nothing quite like it uh, in terms of what it offers us for the history of Lankan Islam. Um, as we all know, Ibn Battuta leaves to go on pilgrimage to Mecca and doesn't come back home for decades, right? He winds up going everywhere else in the world before he makes it back to Morocco. Um, he works for a time as a jurist in the Sultan's court in Delhi, and then has to sneak out of there because this Sultan is rather ill-tempered and Ibn Battuta doesn't want to wind up on the wrong side of that temper. 
He has designs to go to China, which he eventually does, but he's waylaid for quite some time in the Maldives. As he escapes out of Delhi, he winds up there. And he gets a job in the Maldives for a while, also as a jurist, because the Maldives had recently been converted from Buddhism to Islam by another North African Muslim. And it's while Ibn Battuta is in the Maldives that we start to get the first references to Adam's Peak in his work. Uh, when he's there uh, working as a jurist, a group of pilgrims, rather haggard pilgrims, as he puts it, shows up on the islands. And they have just come from Serendip, where they visited the foot of Adam. And they actually recognize him. He knows one of these guys, and they put in the good word for him, which helps secure his position in the Maldives as a jurist. And then later on, while he's working there, he sends one of his companions to go trade cowrie shells in Bengal, right? get some cash flow going by trading shells for other goods. But that French ship gets blown off course and winds up shipwrecked in Serendip. And wow. so his friend, while he's there, decides I might as well take a pilgrimage to the foot of Adam and eventually returns to the Maldives and reports the same to Ibn Battuta. I can't resist chipping in here that I'm sure many listeners will know, but this seems the point that one has to say, well, the English word serendipity is comes of a... A fortunate discovery happening upon something comes from this Arabic name, doesn't it, Serendipity? Absolutely, yes. And this really points to how pilgrimage itself was an act of serendipity in this pre-modern world, because you're subject to the randomness of winds and storms and other vagaries of ocean travel. So it seems, at least from Ibn Battuta's account, that pilgrimages to Adam's Peak were rarely entirely intentional. It was that you got stuck in Serendip for one reason or another. You were waiting for the next set of winds, or you got shipwrecked, or you just got lost and blown off course. And you decided to make the most of your layover by taking a pilgrimage to this mountain that was so famous back on the other side of the ocean. So you obviously were curious to see just what this footprint looked like. So then the same thing happens to Ibn Battuta. He flees the Maldives rather quickly one night because he has really angered the locals by being far too strict of a jurist. They did not agree with his supremely orthodox interpretation of Islam. And so he has to escape and he jumps on a boat and they don't have a proper navigator with them. Now, if you've ever sailed through this part of the Indian Ocean, the Maldives, the Lakhdives, they're incredibly disorienting. There's little islands coming out of everywhere. Um, if there's any bit of fog, you're just hopelessly turned around. And so that happens to Ibn Battuta's vessel. They don't know where they are. And it's only by seeing Adam's Peak from the ocean that they're able to reorient themselves. And this is a particular trick of the geography of the mountain. This is part of the reason it became so famous around the world, is that over a mile out to sea, well before you see any other part of the land of Sri Lanka, you see the mountain rising from the ocean, like this volcanic cone emerging out of the sea. And then you know, okay, we're on the right track, we'll get to a port soon. And so there's all sorts of accounts, not only by folks like Ibn Battuta, but by Europeans as well, of just feeling immense relief upon seeing the mountain, realizing they weren't going to die at sea. They did actually have a destination ahead of them. So Ibn Battuta's boat pulls into the Gulf of Manar, and his companions are afraid to get off because they know that Serendip's full of pirates. But Ibn Battuta is supremely confident that he can talk his way out of any situation. And so he disembarks and um, 
introduces himself to the local Tamil ruler, who he says is a king from the Arya Chakravarti dynasty, which certainly checks out with Tamil sources. They were in control of that coast of Putalam at the time. And he introduces himself as the relative of uh, some sultan in South India, uh, talks of his credentials. And the king, uh, the king loves Ibn Battuta. In fact, Ibn Battuta says this king understands Persian and is delighted by all the stories that Ibn Battuta tells him of his travels up to that point. Um, so it's one of many indications in Ibn Battuta's account that uh, Persian Islam in particular had a quite a stronghold in Sri Lanka. Uh, it seems that Ibn Battuta's guides to Adam's Peak were from that tradition. They stop at several caves or tombs of Sufi sheikhs from Shiraz or other places in what's now modern-day Iran. Uh, and a lot of the words that Ibn Battuta records are Persian words, like the word darwaza for gate, uh, which then he translates into Arabic for his readers back home. Uh, so this king, this uh, Tamil king, asks Ibn Battuta what he would like. You know, I'll grant you one favor, anything you want. And all Ibn Battuta is interested in is to go see the foot of Adam. And the king says, well, that's that's quite easy. I can send you with a pilgrimage group right now. And so they take off. He gives Ibn Battuta a nice palanquin. They parade themselves through the Sri Lankan countryside. They stop in the court of another king, uh, who we can presume was the Singhala Buddhist king at the time. He would have been a somewhat of an economic rival to the Arya Chakravarti Tamil kings. And so this might have been a bit of a a showy move to send some foreign pilgrim with your royal largus through the court of a rival king. Uh, and then eventually Ibn Battuta arrives at the mountain. And it's interesting, it's not simply a journey to see the footprint because there's all these other little sacred sites scattered around, tombs and caves, and each one is associated with the name of a saint or a sheikh, um, or sometimes just an anonymous um, Sufi personage. So the, the old woman's hut, for example, is one of the sites that they stop by. Um, the semi-mythical Sufi figure Ibn Kafif was also said to have climbed the mountain and uh, Ibn Battuta relays several stories about him. And then they uh, worship by sort of camping right at the base of the summit cone and making a mini pilgrimage then three times to the summit itself over the course of their stay and Ibn Battuta describes how they pray at the summit, uh, leave gemstones behind as offerings, and then how those gemstones are collected by the local pilgrimage guides as sort of their fee for their services. Uh, eventually, Ibn Battuta then goes back down uh, another side of the mountain, a different trail. He winds up in Gaul uh, before he departs the island and notes that Gaul is entirely controlled by a Muslim admiral and that there are, are ships in the harbor there that are set to make their way across the sea to Persia. So there's definitely a huge Islamic imprint in the island by the time. And Ibn Battuta just slots himself into this pilgrimage tradition that seems to have been quite robust. So yeah, so you give us a sense here that surrounding then this, the, the mountain, the Adam's Peak, and there's this whole wider Muslim religious geography, really, sacred geography that really is, I suppose, the, you, I don't know, embedded in Sri Lanka of this Indian Ocean history. But nonetheless, it's really already by Ibn Battuta's time in the early 
was it early 1340s, Islam is really embedded then into sort of the landscape then of, of the island itself. And yeah, I mean, I think this is really remarkable. But yeah, I mean, tell us more about this. Uh, what's up there? You know, the, the foot of Adam or indeed the other versions, according to the, the Buddhist and Hindu communities. Sure, absolutely. What, what's up there is a giant footprint. It is an indentation in the rock at the very tip of the summit. It is about six feet long, um, three feet wide or so. It's, it's big enough to lay down in, although you are definitely not allowed to lay down in it anymore. It seems that at a certain point in history, it was not nearly as policed and people could do all sorts of things to the footprint, uh, do whatever sort of rituals they wanted. Now, of course, it's guarded constantly. There's a police officer, sometimes a, a military soldier stationed right there at the footprint. There's CCTV cameras and so on. Uh, this is one of the reasons why when I talked to Muslim pilgrims during my field work there, they expressed a certain amount of discomfort about even trying to pray on the summit, uh, let alone perform any sort of other ritual, just because it felt like there were thousands of eyes watching them. And to be fair, a lot of these uh, people watching them are purely curious. You know, the single Buddhists I would talk to would then ask me, who are these guys? You know, I, I met a, a pair of pilgrims, uh, they came from Iraq, actually, and they came with Ibn Battuta's travelogue in hand in Arabic, trying mm -hmm. to find all of the sites that he mentions. And they were you know, hopelessly disappointed because, of course, none of those sites are marked or you have no idea where the caves are or anything like that. Um, but they were pleased to meet me since I was researching the mountain. And since my name is Alexander, because one of the sites is named the Gate of Iskandar. And so they said, well, we didn't find the Gate of Iskandar, but we found an Alexander anyway. And he seems to know a thing or two about the mountain. Uh, <laughs> but they just said the whole thing felt like, you know, they were some sort of zoo animal, the way people were watching them. But people were asking me. And, you know, what did these fellows believe? Um, and so a lot of, uh, I think, the suspicions about Muslims in the Adam's Peak now nowadays comes from a simple amount of ignorance about Islam and the history there. Uh, a lot of people, for example, would just assume if Muslims are coming to Adam's Peak, it's because they believe the footprint belongs to Muhammad, which, of course, is not the case at all, or that it belongs to, even more oddly, Allah. Uh, but, in fact, it's Adam, the first prophet and the first man. You know, after Ibn Battuta's travelogue, there's there's a large gap in the historical record. It, it's not really until the modern period that we get firsthand accounts of pilgrimage up to Adam's Peak by Muslim authors. But you do see reflections of Muslim pilgrimage continuing to happen in other sources. So in the Singhala tradition, for example, of pilgrimage poetry, these songs that were sung as people climbed the mountain to kind of keep their spirits up, in some of the manuscripts, you find references to the idea that the Buddha left a footprint in Mecca, which is called Makama in Singhala. So this seems to be a sort of counter reaction to Muslims claiming Adam's peak having the footprint of Adam. Buddhists seem to return the favor by claiming that Mecca had the footprint of the Buddha. Uh, you know, there is a footprint in Mecca. I think it's said to belong to Abraham, um, but it could be that the Buddhists heard stories about that and then just imposed their own sort of cosmos on that. Uh, those poems are mostly from the 17th and the, the 18th centuries. Um, and then uh, the British were really infatuated with Adam's Peak for, for many reasons, and they took a lot of pilgrimages there. And so through British travelogue accounts, you also find some records of the Muslims they encountered still worshiping at the mountain, 
Um, there are even mentions of uh, Muslim graves that used to be uh, along the trail um, or Muslim rituals that would happen on the summit, uh, like taking rubbings of the footprint, for example, to bring home with you. Uh, none of that would be allowed anymore. There's no graves to be seen anywhere, but at least in the 19th century, that, that seemed to still be the case. Um, the 19th century is also a time where you find a lot of mosques founded in Colombo and elsewhere on the island that are somehow conceptually linked to Adam's Peak. Uh, so, for example, there's a, a mosque in the heart of Colombo in a neighborhood called Cinnamon Gardens, which is one of the wealthier neighborhoods in the city. It's called the Devatagaha Mosque, um, although nowadays it's more associated with the, the name of the person who's entombed there who is Sheikh Usman, Sheikh Usman Waliullah. Um, and this mosque was first founded in 1820, at a time when cinnamon gardens was literally cinnamon gardens. It was a grove of cinnamon that would be harvested. And the story goes that uh, an old Muslim woman was carrying pots of oil to trade at the market, going through these cinnamon groves. And she trips and she falls down and her pots break and all the oil spills on the ground. So there goes her weekly income, and, and she's just devastated, and she falls on the ground weeping until she falls asleep. And she's awoken by this apparition of a man in green who says, you know, take heart, uh, go you know, tap on this rock a few times, and oil will come out and fill your jug. And indeed that happens, and this apparition tells her, you know, go and spread the story of what you saw here. So the woman runs off and tells the local Muslim community and they come and they do a flag planting ceremony there. And this, this becomes a mosque. Now, it's interesting. This story is, a, is very similar to the types of folk tales you find told amongst Buddhist and Hindu communities. Somebody wandering through the forest, somebody loses consciousness, they're in dire straits, and there is some sort of magical apparition that restores their wealth and their health. And in the Buddhist and Hindu cases, it's usually a minor deity. Uh, interestingly, the name of the mosque, Devatagaha Mosque, means like the tree of the minor deity, the godling. Devata is godling and Gaha is tree. So initially, you see a lot of uh, cultural overlap happening here. It's interesting that nowadays the, the shrine is more associated with this name, Sheikh Usman, as if the Muslim community is trying to distance itself from those older connections. Um, well, they didn't know Sheikh Usman was buried there for some time, in fact. It wasn't until 1847 that a visitor from the Maghreb comes, somewhere from northern Africa, comes to uh, Ceylon, and he kneels down in meditation at the spot for several hours. And when he emerges, it's with the revelation that, in fact, there is a famous sheikh buried there. It's uh, Sayyid Usman Siddiq Ibn Abdurrahman, and we should build a much larger mosque, is his recommendation. Um, and he, he explains in his revelation that this sheikh arrived in Ceylon originally to go on pilgrimage to Adam's Peak. And it was after his pilgrimage to Adam's Peak that he passed away there in Cinnamon Gardens. Um, so you have this sort of backwriting of the history of the mosque. It starts off as this cross-cultural folktale, and then it turns into a more distinctly like Arab-oriented Islam, um, but it maintains that Adam's Peak connection. Uh, and when I went and visited the mosque during my fieldwork and talked to the older trustees, that Adam's Peak connection is still very much present, as much as the the mosque has otherwise oriented itself more towards its its Arabic name rather than its Tamil name or Singhala name. Uh, the, 
the connection to Adam's Peak is indelible. So this is how the, the Muslim community keeps the links going, despite the creeping Buddhist hegemony in various shared sites. Um, we know that as, as recently as 1954, there were still uh, uh, Hindu sh or sorry Muslim shrines on the summit. There is a, a Tamil Muslim author from the East Coast. His name is Maratar Majid. And he writes in one of his Tamil books that he visited the mountain in 1954. He visited again in 1959. And at that point, as he puts it, there was a small mosque on the summit, along with a small Hindu shrine and a small Buddhist shrine. But 1954 was the year when there was a key monastic election uh, for the Sri Pada temple. Uh, and this new Buddhist monk who came in was much more about purifying the space as for Buddhists only. So over time, those other shrines are dismantled, the participation of non-Buddhists in ritual is curtailed, and then Maruta Majid writes that by the time he returned to the mountain in 1975, there was nothing left at the summit except the Buddhist shrine. Everything else had been dismantled. So you brought us really yeah, up until the recent past, and at this 1,300, 1,400-year history of the Muslim presence in Sri Lanka and this real sense of the kind of the entanglement, whether in terms of historical narratives of, of particular spaces, whether a mosque or indeed the, the mountain, and the entanglement of spaces, of geographies, of ideas, and indeed of, of communities, natural living human beings of different communities on, on, the, on the island. So against this more than 1,000-year history of Islam on the island, what are the key issues facing Sri Lanka's Muslims today as they negotiate with their traditions in relation to, as you've hinted to there, Alex, the, the presence of both assertive Buddhist nationalism and indeed something that's been sometimes in the background of your, of your discussion today of transnational Islamic reformism too? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Muslim community in Sri Lanka is at a bit of a crossroads right now. Which direction do we go? Do we double down on our Sri Lankan heritage and the traditions here we have, which are so connected to land and these sacred sites? Um, because the Buddhists seem like they don't want us here, and they seem to be retaking these sacred sites and, and dismantling Muslim shrines. Um, and so then do we go toward the more transnational Ummah? which is a very Wahhabi-influenced Orthodox Islam, which is shorn of shared spaces and rituals that might be deemed un-Islamic. Um, so it's a very uh, stark sort of fork in the road that Muslims have come upon. Um, what's interesting, though, is that if you hear the Sinhala Buddhists tell it, there's really no culture that's going to be left for Sri Lankan Muslims, because Buddhist nationalists would say, well, if the Muslims would just stop looking to the Middle East for their culture and, and let us sort of shape their culture as Sri Lankans, everything would be okay. But then if you look at what the Singhala Buddhists are actually doing, and it's actively dismantling those old pieces of Sri Lankan Muslim culture. So it's entirely unsurprising when young Muslims, especially those who have gone to work abroad in the Middle East, come back much more interested in that version of a sort of uniform, orthodox, global ummah, rather than these old stories about, oh, a folklore, uh, about a woman who fell unconscious. You know? um, at the same time, Muslims have not abandoned these sites entirely. Uh, so in addition to Adam's Peak, there's another site I've researched called Daftar Jailani, as I mentioned. 
there recently, uh, five years ago, six years ago, the, the Sri Lankan army came in and dismantled most of the Muslim structures at the site. However, they did leave the mosque that was there sort of cut out into the rock. Uh, and so the, the Muslims have deliberately not abandoned the place. They, they really want to maintain that foothold, even as the Buddhists go about building their own structures now and trying to turn it into a Buddhist pilgrimage site. Uh, they're not ready to give it up, the Muslim community. And I feel the same thing is happening at Adam's Peak. There are no Muslim shrines along the trail anymore. In fact, there was an act of vandalism in 2019 that erased the name Adam's Peak from the trailhead sign altogether, which I think even more than sort of an anti-English or anti-colonial gesture, that was definitely an anti-Muslim gesture to get rid of this notion that it could be Adam's footprint at all. Um, so it was in response to a challenge somebody posted on Facebook that a Buddhist nationalist went and spray painted the name in black. Um, and when they rebuilt the sign, Adam's Peak was gone. You know, the, the mountain now has singular name of Sri Pada. It has the Tamil Hindu name of Sivanoli Padam, but there is no indication of Islamic heritage. And yet at the same time, Muslims still come. They come during the off season. They come in large groups with their madrasa. Um, young guys come who are part of Tawhid Jamaat, so it's not just like a pilgrimage for old Sufis. And Muslims still come from all over the world. I met Muslims from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, from Tamil Nadu, from Iraq, from Syria, even from uh, Morocco. And so it still remains a transnational Muslim pilgrimage site. And that is something I think that the Sri Lankan Muslim community should take pride in and hold on to. Well, let us hope so. That's really a fascinating picture of a, a little known, but altogether fascinating, fascinating set of Muslim communities in Sri Lanka and such an important, enduring part of Sri Lanka's own history. Professor Alexander McKinley, thank you so much for talking to us and sharing your research with us here in Akbar's Chamber. Thanks so much, Niall. It was a really great conversation. Da 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 da